Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. This is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, uh, have you ever raised sea monkeys? I have. Yeah. Were, yeah. You, were you disappointed? Um, yeah, a little bit, but I think I was more intrigued by the atmosphere that they were living in. Like, With, that seemed really magical. Well, on the package, it looks magical. Right. Because it shows these little creatures living, and they have, like, a little undersea kingdom. Right. And then you expect that to take place. To and pop it, up. And it doesn't really happen. No, it doesn't. Like, but I was taken with that. I thought, oh, yes, finally. <laughs> well, like, like growing sprouts is, I find that to be far more satisfying. And at the end, I have like something delicious to put on a sandwich. Sea monkeys, mm. not that delicious. No, really. not at all. Yeah. Yeah. But they're a species of brine shrimp, right? Yeah. I mean, not to take away the mystique here, but. Yeah. Yeah. They're not, they're not actually, uh, you know, hominids in any way, shape or form. Yeah. Tiny sea monkeys. Yeah. But uh, according to their packaging, they are a true miracle of nature. Are they? Yes. Well, um, I mean, everything is really. But, but you know, there's um, th- these undersea kingdoms that they had. Uh, like it, like it really captured my imagination. I think a lot of people's imaginations because because there's something uh, like in, in the, uh, the the psyche that, that just wants to see underwater cities. Uh, I guess it's just the like the just impossible nature of it, the sort of uh, uh, topsy turvy world aspect of it. Well, yeah, I mean, if you think about it uh geographically, it is like the the earth turned upside down or not the earth, but the what we see here yeah. uh, as landlubbers. Um so why wouldn't you want to hang out in that submerged mountain range? Yeah, and it's you know, it's the mystery of it too, like the what's underneath the water, you know? You can see, see yeah. some, some fish, something that looks kind of like a mermaid. Yeah. Um, and then there's the whole tranquil thing. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it's like you're weightless and it's yeah, it's uh so it's it's a it's a an idea that's been explored a number of times. Like just to run through like a few of the uh, the famous ones. Like in in myth, you have the lost cities of S and Atlantis. Yes. Um, yes. Yes, you do. Oh, I thought you were correcting because I wasn't exactly sure how to pronounce because it looks kind of like yeast and it and it's I thought it was pronounced like S, but it could be yes, the I, city of yes. Yes. No, I was just agreeing. <laughs> they are mythic. You have um, the city of Rapture in the Bioshock games. You have. Uh, Lioness in the war in War Gods of the Deep. You have the lost city of Atlanta in Futurama. Did you ever see that one? Where no. It's like uh, the city uh, of Atlanta, which where we're podcasting from, is uh, completely submerged and mer people live in it. Oh my goodness! You know? I'm gonna have to seek that one out. <laughs> and uh, it, it it's not. I mean, it's it's like an outsider's uh, critique. Okay, of, like, I was gonna a, say, yeah. does it have Marta? Does it have like no, like poor an, underground Atlanta? Or yeah, yeah. because an an insider's view of uh, the lost city of Atlantis, I think, would would be a lot more interesting, at least to Atlanta. Yeah. Because what happens to Marta when it's when it's submerged? It's um, still late. Yeah. Uh, you have, uh, of course, uh, uh, Sub Diego of Aquaman. You have uh, the city of, uh, and I'm never sure how to pr- pronounce this, even though I've re- read Lovecraft numerous times, but you have the city of Relier. Yeah, uh, I know. I've always wondered how to, how yeah. to do that. Yeah. I always, I always just think of it as like Cthulhu Town, you know. Or yeah, right. That's Dagon where Cthulhu city. lives. Yeah. And then, uh, and, and then you, you, you have like various like mechanical underwater cities that have popped up like, uh, uh, I like, or, or not, or not always cities, but sometimes just habitats. Uh, I have anyone who's seen, uh, any of the, like at the late nineties, I, I feel like it was when we had just tons of underwater, a base underwater city, uh, situation showing up in the films. You had like the abyss, you had deep star six, you had the Leviathan, Lords of the deep. Right. It was water like, world. 
Waterworld. Did, did they ever go underwater? I've never seen Waterworld. I haven't either. Actually, I think that they, not having seen it though, um, I think that they just created like a bunch of floating areas, ah. floating cities. So. Nonetheless. Yeah. They so, were on the water. Well, they were on the water. They, they might have had stuff on, yeah, slightly on I the bet they took a swim every once in a while. Yeah. Yeah. In, in the unfilmed sequel, maybe. But, uh. <laughs> But uh, but anyway, outside of the realm of myth and fantasy and science fiction, uh, we we've actually looked into this uh, uh, through through a number of experiments, and it's, a, yeah. it's an idea that continues to capture the imagination, and it uh, and often ends up uh, uh, spilling over into a scientific inquiry. Yeah, and it it seems to me like uh, like the 1950s saw a really big fascination with this, and that this yeah. has some parallels with space colonization. Yeah. The same sort of idea where, where we could enter this mysterious, um, quiescent space and, and live our lives in a completely different way. Yeah. And it goes back, like anytime you look at like the, like the Walt Disney, uh, you know, Epcot Center visions of tomorrow or, you know, the yeah. world of tomorrow. And it was, you know, it was always like, oh, you know, we're totally, we're, we're going to do it, guys. We're going to have cities on the moon. Uh, we're going to, we're going to live underwater in cities. It, I mean, it was just this, since that same sense of optimism that that you know that told us that with science at our side, you know the the, the stars are ours, the, and it's you know so of course the ocean is also within our grasp. Of course, the funny thing now is it's driven by pessimism. I think because it's like, well, hmm, we're we're really <laughs> um, eating up all the natural resources here and taking up a lot of land. Maybe we should explore the oceans a little bit more. Maybe it's possible to live underneath them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, where it's like, oh, well, the, the environment's not going too hot. Uh, everything's going to be underwater anyway. Right, right. So can we make everything float or make it just all, you know, waterproof? Yeah. So 2050, we... New York City, maybe <laughs> it's just a, a chain of little islands and underground pods. Who knows? <laughs> so one of the, uh, the first that really comes to mind, like, uh, like when, and this is when people were actually like, let's, let's do it. Let's, let's try it out. Be- because, uh, on the sur, you know, uh, on the surface, uh, on the, um, yeah, on the surface of things, like the idea sounds pretty simple. You know, if, you, if you're not familiar with any of the, uh, uh, the, the, the science involved, it's like, well, let's just build something underwater. You know, it's all, it's airtight, uh, pump some air down to it and people will live in it. That'd right. Be great. Right. It'll be like the channel. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, uh, it, it gets a lot more complicated than that. Uh, and when one of the, uh, the, the the main uh, guys who was really looking into this um, in the uh, late fifties, early sixties was, of course, Jacques Cousteau. Mm-hmm. Uh, Clay. So wait. Clay. Oh, I thought you were. I said yes. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to do more of a French take on Cousteau because because I feel like I'm not getting the the, the proper. Clay. Oh, okay. This just one syllable. Is that? Clay. Okay. I don't know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's not my forte. Jacques Cousteau's. Uh, that's right. You're more Italian. See. Si. Okay. Um. <laughs> But uh, Jacques Cousteau had the uh, Con Shelf project, and uh, this was a series of, of three uh, underwater um, habitats yeah. that, uh, that they explored. And, and it, it gets right into the idea of the aquanaut, which is like the astronaut except underwater, basically. Right. It's just going down for an extended period of time, you know, adapting to the pressure, uh, scuba divers living and operating both inside and outside or an underwater shelter. Right. And yeah. to be you know, uh, specific about it, and we're not talking about David Blaine, like, doing some sort of, like, 17-minute stunt under the water. Right. Um, but it's more about someone living in a underwater habitat or using some sort of device for 24 hours or more in right. order to explore the area around him or herself. Yeah. No, the first one of these that uh, Jacques Cousteau and company pulled off uh, 
It was Con Shelf 1, and this is 1962, and this is just off the, 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 the coast of uh, France uh, near uh, Marcellus. Okay. And uh, they just went down about, they went down 33 feet, 10 meters, and this, is, this thing just looked like a big steel yellow barrel, uh, about 16 feet, 5 meters long, you know, uh, 8 feet, 2.5 meters in diameter, and it was a, you know, it's like a home laboratory, two guys in there, one week, 30 people observing from the surface, monitoring these guys' health. Right. Um, and, uh, and they'd leave the tube for five hour shifts to study sea life, uh, work on an underwater farm, which sounds fabulous. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and again, they're just like, it, they weren't actually like, all right, we, we, you know, we got to, you know, get a crop going this week. It's, you know, it's more like, right. let's, let's observe what would happen if we actually did have people down on the, uh, you know, the bottom of, of, of the of the ocean working on something. Let's let's look at their vitals. Let's see how they're doing. Right, and it's a really practical solution too, right? Because they don't have to decompress. They don't mm-hmm. have to worry about coming up. Um, so if they're able to hang out there for a while, then they can, you know, amass a lot of data, look yeah. at it, continue to go out, so on and so forth. Yeah, because just just to, without getting into a whole lot of depth about uh, about the bins, uh, but uh, you you go down to certain um, you go down to to, to certain uh, depths, you have more pressure, and that. Uh, Causes the uh, the gas and uh, breathable um, air to um, dissolve into your flesh. Right, the and nitrogen. It, yeah, and if you surface too fast, you get nitrogen bubbles, which can be exceedingly painful uh, or fatal. So, um, which means you you know the, the longer you stay down, the longer you need to come back up. Yep. Yeah, right, and it was originally called the Grecian bend, by the way. The Grecian bend. Yeah, huh. I don't know what maybe. They attributed like bending to the Grecians. I don't know. But huh. They observed people bending over. Oh wow! So it's actually like you would come up and you mm-hmm. would just be bent over. Huh? Yeah, yeah, doubled I over. As did it not were. know that. Yeah. So, um, Conshelf One was a success. They, you know, it's just sort of like let's test it out. Let's see, because this hadn't really been done before. You know, you, yeah. you had guys going down in submarines. Sure, you know, you had people have been diving underwater to catch fish, and and you've, you know, in Jacques Cousteau certainly spent a lot of time developing you know, uh, you know scuba aqualung technology. But but this was a real first. You yeah, know? I mean it's pretty groundbreaking, and um, even though it was basically like a low tech uh, sort of, it was like a shipping container basically. Yeah. It's low tech in in terms of what we think of today. But yeah, and, and you you look at images from the inside, and it looks like two dudes living in a yeah. big barrel. Like it looks kind of it looks rugged. It's not. Yeah, socks very, everywhere. It's not pretty. Yeah, it's not very Steve Zissou. It's just yeah. like a like guys living in a barrel. Um. So, so they, this was a success. So they're like, let's try something a little more ambitious. Let's, um, let's actually maybe leave, um, you know, our French backyard here and, and, you know, and prove that we can do this in a, in a, in a more uh, exotic location. So they went to, uh, the Red Sea and, uh, and then, and went down, uh, this time again, uh, 10 meters, uh, in, in depth, uh, 33 feet. And, uh, Conshelf 2 had uh, like three different facilities, basically, two yeah. main facilities. There was a, a starfish house, which doesn't look as much like a starfish. No, but it, it doesn't. But it had like a central hub and like these little areas come sticking off from the side. Mm-hmm. Um, when we do a blog post uh, for a uh, roundup for these uh, podcasts, uh, for this week's podcast, I'll be sure to you know throw a link to a couple of good sites that have lots of cool images of these. But uh, but yeah, they um, uh, the the main starfish house contained uh, crew quarters, bathroom facilities, a dining area, a laboratory. So suddenly everything's are a lot. Everything is a lot more life aquatic. Right. Uh, a lot more, uh, you know, like we think of as an undersea base and less like a barrel. Right. They're thinking more aesthetically now. Yeah. And next, uh, the next door to this, they have a structure that they call the aquarium, which was basically a garage. Uh, 
for the uh, fly, for the diving saucer vehicle that they had, which uh, you know, cool little submersible unit um, for zooming around underwater, uh, an equipment hangar, and then they also had a complex called Deep Station, which was located um, 80, uh, 82 feet uh, deep. So it was, you know, it's like a, you know, it was even deeper than the, than the main station. Right. And this is a ha- and uh, a habitat filled with oxygen helium mixture. Uh, with the inhabitants, uh, divers leaving the habitat to do daily work below 160 feet. Okay, is this the one that they spent a month in? Yes, yeah, five, okay. uh, yeah, five uh, um, aquanauts or oceanauts uh, would live. If you're French, yeah. So, no, I, I really think that. Yeah, yeah or, they call them oceanauts. 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 Yeah. Uh, five, five of these guys would, uh, or one, or gals, I think they were all guys in this though, would live uh, for a month in the starfish base. Two of them would spend a week in the deep station. Mm-hmm. And um, once more, project was successful, and uh, Cousteau began uh, talking about a third project. Yeah, and again, I see the parallels here between this and space, right? Yeah. Like, there's the, you're completely isolated. You're with very few uh, people. I mean, the, even though they, they've gotten a little bit more pimped out here, mm-hmm. you're, it's still aesthetically like not like it is at home. The comfort yeah. level is, isn't as great. And you have to wonder about the psychological ramifications of this, too. Yeah, just basically, I mean, it's like you get down to the basics of humans need sunlight. And the deeper you go, the less sunlight there is. It's right. just a, uh, you know, a weird uh, habitat. Plus being, like, soggy all the time, that's got yeah. to chafe. Yeah, to say nothing of the athlete's foot down there. <laughs> uh, I, or, or maybe it was called con shelf foot. Um, <laughs> With those in the know. Yeah. Yeah. But but actually, you know, we talked about the, the space exploration. A lot of uh, the data that came out of uh, uh, this and other uh, experiments uh, in the uh, in the early '60s. I mean, it was stuff that they could they were able to apply to right. uh, to, to contemplating, you know, sort of habitats in, in orbit. This presentation is brought to you by Intel, sponsors of Tomorrow. So 1965 now we're up to, and this is Conchelf 3, the third and, and final um, underwater habitat. And this was like the ultimate. This was like a large yellow and black six-person sphere, which was lowered to a depth of, of uh, 328 feet, 100 meters. So the crew lived on Conchelf 3 for three weeks, venturing out each day to work in a mock-up oil well. And... Uh, you know, just to, you know, test their ability to, you know, to leave this thing and work and then come back. And again, it was a success. They were, they were able to show that, yes, we can put people down there on, uh, you know, at a, at a considerable depth. Yeah. And they can, they can actually operate and, and work, uh, within this, uh, you know, this time limit. So. Right. And actually, um, 300 feet is, is the norm, right? For what we usually go down to in terms of depth that, that we have access to. Yeah. Yeah. Cause otherwise then you get down into the really cold, uh, extremophile territory, so yeah. to speak. Yeah, so this was really pushing uh, pushing the envelope. Um, at the same time, the, the U.S. Navy was interested in this, too. And so they had the C-Lab um, programs, which this is one of the reasons I did not mention C-Lab 2021 earlier, because I didn't want to confuse the issue. But this is the actual C-Lab, mm-hmm. uh, not to be confused with any uh, cartoon. Right. Uh, so 64 uh, C Lab one, and this was this was very like the C Lab like uh, Conshelf rolled out in three phases, very similar. Uh, C Lab one was a um, you know windowless red cylinder had four guys in it, eleven days performing physical biological experiments. Uh, uh, you know they were doing stuff with like uh, uh, ultrasonic beacons and anti shark cages uh, again just to see how they you know performed. And this was off the off Panama City, Florida, and um, 
then they, uh, they, they moved it about 26 miles southwest of Bermuda and tried it out at 200 feet. And, uh, it was a success. So they did Sea Lab 2 in 65. And, um, this was, uh, this was uh, out in San Francisco. And they had 10 men, depth of uh, 200 feet, 30 days. Uh, it, and it was another cylinder, uh, type situation. So it wasn't as cool. Uh, I mean, in, it's just me, but it's not as cool looking as the as Con Shelf Two. But Sea right. Lab Two was was bigger, looked kind of like a little submarine, mm-hmm. and uh, and they were they conducted you know physiological psychological studies. Yeah, uh, that's what I think is interesting about this part is they they took a lot of what they learned from Con Shelf, right? Yeah, because Con Shelf originally I think was was pitched to them, and they they said no, and Coast. Oh, uh, and they yeah. decided to do their own thing. Yeah, yeah. and Jacques Cousteau said, oh, "I'll I'll take it on." So it's. What I think is interesting about C-Lab is that they really are looking at the, psych- the psychological uh, strains and the physiological strains on the person as well. Yeah. And the, the number of experiments that they, uh, they, they did on C-Lab 2 was actually pretty cool. Like, the, they just really threw a lot of tasks at these guys. Yeah. Like, um, uh, they were evaluating the structural engineering of the habitat. They worked up on they worked on a mock up for a submarine hull. They tested undersea tools. They used, um, uh, um, uh, like in, like foam to raise an old navy jet fighter to the surface. They experimented with plants, uh, and they also uh, experimented with a trained porpoise named Tuffy to do uh, quote courier work between the habitat and the surface. Uh, so th- that I like was that Tuffy. Tuffy, uh, and Tuffy was trained. Uh, yeah, trained uh, to respond to a buzzer. And, uh, Tuffy would, uh, apparently did a pretty good job of bringing them mail tools and bottles of soda, which, I don't know, it sounds kind of demeaning, but. No, but, I mean, there's part of that, part of that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. Know? I mean, who hasn't trained their dog to probably get them a beer? Well, not me, because I don't have a dog, but it's always seemed yeah. like a good thing to do. Yeah. Has the cat, uh, been able to, to, to succeed in that yet? No. Oh, okay. No. We'll keep working. No, I mean, he's, happen. he's working on bigger projects. Okay. Yeah. That he can't discuss with me. <laughs> well, uh, sadly, C Lab 3, um, which was similar to C Lab 2, just kind of like more robust, uh, it ended up being kind of a, a disaster, uh, unfortunately. Uh, and this was, uh, February 1969. They lowered it down to the ocean floor off, um, off the coast of California. They sent four divers down to repair a helium leak on C Lab 3. And, uh, and during the, the attempt, one of the divers uh, died, apparently, of carbon dioxide asphyxiation. Yeah. Yeah. So they were concerned about their safety, and they just shut it down. I mean, this is the rub, right? The CO2 problem. Yeah. I mean, this is this is obviously why we can't um, colonize the oceans. Lucky for the oceans, I suppose. Um, but that doesn't mean that we don't continue to try and build really, like, macked out stuff like the Trilobus 65. Oh, yeah. This one's really... Um, Really awesome looking. Uh, this uh, particular um, uh, submersible habitat was uh, the cover story for Popular Mechanics back in uh, 2002. So you may you may have seen it there. I'll just throw a link up to the uh, to to the website. It has the images of it. It's so it's, cool. Yeah, it's really really. Uh, I dare say, boss. Yes. Um, you know, it it looks like uh, like a, a James Bond villain should be living in it and feeding people to sharks. Um, it's true. That's it's uh, like a sphere, right? Yeah. It's got yeah, four kind of separate a, levels. Yeah. It, um, it's very like retro to me at the same time. Yeah, it kind of looks like a like a space clam that lives in the yeah, water. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 really cool. Uh, but the clam part being like the open, the where the windows are. And, yeah. yeah, and it has like lots of areas, you know, for you need know, to sit by the sit by the window and observe. Uh, 
you know, fish and dolphins swimming by. All that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely for the gadfly of the seas, right? Yeah. Um, and it's got a spiral staircase connecting all four levels. Yeah. So it's neat. We'll see if it ever actually gets built. But uh, the design's out there. Yeah. What I like about it, too, is that they say that the shape allows for modular aggregation, creating colonies, if you'd like. Oh. So, I mean, to me, I think of it as like this super futuristic Sausalito. You know, these sort of, they're not houseboats, but necessarily but these communities of, oh uh, so they kind of like hook up and yeah know. right you can have like a whole community of, of trilobis if you'd like <laughs> trilobi um and and uh there are then there of course is uh we've we discussed this a little bit in life on the 500th floor but uh you have you have hydropolis which is the uh planned uh underwater uh skyscraper in dubai right yeah and it's at it, this time right now it's i think it's still in the works, um, yeah, I, a.k.a. being crushed by the economy. Yeah. So I don't know where they are in the process, but it does sound like uh, this completely crazy superfly. Of course, it's in Dubai, right? So yeah. it's it's not going to be a junky structure. Um, but it includes a shopping mall, restaurants, movie theater, and my favorite, the, the missile defense system. <laughs> all 60 feet underwater. Yeah. But, you know, the economy's been rough on everybody. So in Dubai, they're just going to be like, all right, we're going to tighten the belt. We're just going to... Build the largest um, skyscrapers that have ever, uh, you know, been erected on the planet, uh, and we'll just we'll just hold off on building underwater um, <laughs> skyscrapers that are protected by uh, atomic weapons. Right, exactly. But what I like about this is that it, it, you know, a poor man's hydropolis is uh, the Jules Undersea Lodge, um, which is named after the author of Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, Jules Verne. Oh. And that is actually the world's first underwater hotel. And it was originally built in the 70s as a research lab off the coast of uh, Puerto Rico. And then it was relocated to Key Largo in 86 and opened its hatch to the public then. But it's 21 feet under the sea and you have to scuba dive to get to it. Oh, wow. So unlike Hydropolis, which uh, they plan to have like this crazy clear glass um Tube that shoots you <laughs> underneath. Oh wow! It's like to in, the uh, lobby. It, it's like in Futurama where they have these uh, these tubes, these uh, the, that, that shoot people like pneumatic tubes. That yes, uh, yeah, yeah. And supposedly it is supposed to be in the shape of a jellyfish or resemble a jellyfish. Right. I don't know really, really how that works, but um, that seems like more like a subway system to me. Yeah, it, maybe they can work on making the the, the overall design even more ambitious. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> or they could, you know, save some money and streamline it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there, there are different ways that you can get at living undersea if you'd like, you know, if you are the gadfly yeah. about town. Uh, th- one of the interesting things we were looking at the other day, too, is that uh, you have the Ni- National Science Foundation's Ocean Observations uh, uh, Initiative. And yeah. This is, um, it it kind of forces you. It's, it's a re- really kind of it's a complex, multi-scale observatory plan where you have uh, it's like, you know, everything from like just very regional, uh, observations, uh, of, uh, of the undersea environment to kind of interconnect into a, like a global, um, it's kind of like putting spy cameras on, uh, like the, the very rough explanation is like, let's put spy cameras and sensors automated yeah. on the, the ocean floor. Let's have, um, uh, you know, automated, uh, submersibles sort of going on patrol and checking out conditions. Right. Let's collect data on every single thing mm-hmm. we could collect data on. And, you know, let's run fiber optic, um, lines all over the place. Like you said, cameras. Let's have platforms that we can observe, submersibles, anything and everything. Because the idea is that 
the entire world can benefit from better knowing its oceans mm-hmm. and that we can help to predict climate change. Um, we can look at the population of uh, species and really better understand what's going on. Because right now, I mean, the ocean is largely unknown to us, yeah. again, parallel to space. Um, and, you know, it's covering more than 70 percent of, of uh, the world. So it does kind of make you say, oh, OK, that, that seems like it might be a good idea. Yeah, and it, it, it's an interesting parallel to space, too, because, like, both visions of us, you know, moving under the ocean and, and moving in, into the, the cosmos, like, it, it was very much tied with the scientific exploration. We're going to go down there and figure out how things work. We're going to go up there right. and, and, and figure out what space is all about. And uh, eventually the, the technology reaches the point where we're like, well, we can actually do that easier without, you know, trying to tackle all these problems involving how do you take a fragile um, human being that's, it's designed to live in a certain layer of the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, how are you going to, you know, create the technology to safely send that into orbit or into, you know, pressurized depths uh, when we can just send robots instead? And and you know, and, and the idea is understanding what's going on down there. So, uh, you know, we can. Well, this is a, a classic example. I mean, it's it's a lot like robotic probes. You know, it's, right? It's we we can do this without necessarily sending people down there. Right. Right. And the. Um the uh, oceanographer, John Delaney, who's heading up the team working on this, mm-hmm. he was actually saying, I mean, he wasn't saying this was the Holy Grail, but I was thinking about it as the Holy Grail in the sense um, that it's a quest to better understand our world. But not only that, that beneath the ocean floor, there's all this biomass tied up living in microbes. Mm-hmm. Um, they're living in the sea cracks or beneath the floor. And the total amount of biomass living at the surface of um, the ocean floor actually exceeds that of the planet's surface. Wow. So his idea is, could it, you know, could it be the next rainforest in terms of potential pharmaceuticals? Right. And that's that's the holy grail element that I think that is really enticing, but also, you know, could be a red herring. Yeah. I mean, you know, it would be really interesting to to find out what sort of bacteria is there and could it be useful to us? Now, the flip side of that is, okay, when you start to interrupt ecosystems, because presumably there would be some level of interruption when you're laying on the cable, which we've done a lot anyway, um, and you have all these submersibles, you know, what what is it doing to the oceans? Yeah, because, so, uh, I mean, on one level, it's like we're already laying, we've been putting a lot of crap down there for Right. Ages and, you know, you know, we're erecting, you know, oil rigs and, and, and everything else. But, uh, you know, this would be for a much more positive, uh, uh, purpose. But still, it, you're laying, laying a lot of cable. You're, you know, you're, you're putting a lot of machines out there. Stuff's gonna, you know, there's gonna be a certain amount of, uh, litter that's gonna. Yeah. And if you're, if you're gonna pool. try to map the entire ocean with sonar, what is that gonna do to the, you know, population of, you know, dolphins? Yeah. Yeah. And- we, yeah. We already have, uh, examples of, uh, of a certain like navy certain navy sonar uh, uh techniques that are interfering with uh with uh, with certain types of whales and dolphins so right you know. and the breeding and yeah, yeah yeah they're getting it's i guess it's sort of confusing them in terms of what they're perceiving um from the sonar so yeah. there's that question I mean, it really is intriguing to yeah. to be able to find out more and what if there is a sort of rainforest at the bottom of the sea for us what if there's a mermaid kingdom and we <laughs> or you know or or you know or we've discovered the lost city of Atlantis and we tick them off with our robots and they uh, attack us. It could happen. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you're like Richard Branson, you just get into your submersible and you zoom away. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. Oh, what? Oh, I, you know, I keep forgetting that he has a submersible. I, I tend up end up reading far more about uh, the, his uh, interest in space and 
Right. Again, yeah. here we go. He, he can't help himself either. Space and um, in the ocean. It's called the the Necker Nymph. <laughs> I know. It's a. I mean, the name. I'm sorry, but uh, the Necker part is Necker Island, which he owns. You know, his private island, and the Nymph part. I, I suppose is supposed to be a sea nymph. Um, but it can dive to depths of up to 130 feet, and he hopes to one day explore depths of 35,000 feet plus. Um, but it can carry a pilot and two visitors. It can go on a two hour trip. And, uh, after you have to, of course, be, um, fluid in the, in the language of scuba diving in order to do this, mm-hmm. I guess as a legal uh, protocol or something. But, uh, the nymph is available for hire. It's $25,000 a week. It just sounds like a, um, like some sort of a pleasure barge. It just, uh, the nymph. Yeah. I know. Richard Branson. Come on. I yeah. mean, yeah. I mean, that's, what do you expect? Um, but just in case you're wondering, it does have fighter jet technology. Oh, well, good. Yeah. Cause, you know, just in case you do come across, uh, Atlantis. So, I mean, I don't know. All this sort of bears out the question of, of, uh, what are we doing to the oceans? Who, who even owns the oceans? Yep. Josh uh, Clark has an awesome article on that. Uh, he does. And- do a search on the House of Works homepage and find that. Yeah. Um, and, and will we ever permanently uh, have human occupation of the seafloor? I don't think so. But it could happen. We'll see. We'll see. Well, I mean, we won't see. We'll be dead. But somebody will see. <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing about that. Dead. Yay. <laughs> uh, well, hey, we have some uh, listener mail here. And the first one uh, actually... Uh, corresponds with the theme of this podcast. Uh, we recently did uh, uh, an episode on uh, accessorizing to make a, to make us more than human. That's right. And uh, one of the technologies that we covered was the dolphin suit, uh, which you wore for that podcast. Yeah, kind of uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. But a hit at the Y. Yeah, I bet. Uh, so Richard, uh, a listener by the name of Richard, uh, sends this in. He says, hi, I recently bought these. And he throws a link to something called the Dark Fing, no, I'm sorry, dark thin gloves. I thought it was dark fing gloves, but it's dark thin gloves, uh, dot com. Not sure if I will ever use them, but I thought they were, they were really cool and priced well enough that I should own them just to say I own them. Maybe I'll freak my daughter out at bath time or something. So if you, if you go to the website, uh, and did you have a chance to look at these? No, I haven't. All right. Well, they're, they're, they're black webbed gloves and they, they kind of look like uh, creature from the black lagoon hands mm-hmm. and uh, and and I think would make an interesting companion to those uh, toe shoes that people uh, wear oh uh, right yeah. yeah yeah I don't know how I feel about that actually uh, I've, I've heard mixed things but well I mean I think toes are a separate issue unto themselves I'm not quite sure that you should define them with toe sock <laughs> shoes yeah but yeah that's for another podcast I suppose but uh, but no these these look pretty cool. I mean they look kind of creepy and would I think would be ideal for creeping somebody out at bath time. Um, <laughs> but but also I mean it's like it's just adding webbing to improve uh, your, you know your speed. Right. And I wonder too if like I don't I I try and swim semi regularly and I find that like holding my hand together to make a like a, you know, like like a, a scoop a scoop to to swim with uh, like I end up my fingers feel kind of sore the next day. Well, that makes sense because you're you're. Yeah. Uh, you're flexing your muscles and your your hands and your fingers. Yeah, but it freaks me out. Because you normally go around like that all day long, right? Well, yeah, just in case I need to karate chop somebody. You know? Right, right. So I'm just constantly, and then I have to type. So, but uh, yeah, it's dangerous in these halls. You never know. You never know. Yeah, but it it makes me makes me wonder. It's like, should I look into having something that like holds my fingers together so I'm not straining to create that scoop? I don't know. I think so. Yeah, I yeah. should I should probably do a search on. I mean, it. keep in mind you have to type. 
you don't want to, you know. Yeah, these are the money makers. Exactly. I can't, I can't depend just on podcasting. That's right. Those babies are insured. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, uh, Richard, thanks for sending that in. They are pretty cool. And that's, uh, again, that's, uh, darkfingloves.com. You can, they have cool pictures. You can check them out. Uh, we also received an email from a listener by the name of Derek. And, uh, he, uh, responded to our, um, uh, in a recent podcast, we mentioned, or I mentioned, uh, how Atlanta shows up in The Walking Dead. Yeah. Uh, and it has all these, like, apo- post-apocalyptic-looking uh, locations, despite the fact that the the the, uh, the film doesn't take that far in the future. So it's, you know, it's like Atlanta's pretty post-apocalyptic-looking already, uh, if you look in most of the right places. Uh, and uh, anyway, he just wrote in uh, to say... Um, uh, to, to point out that uh, it says, quote, while hopefully Atlanta doesn't look quite as post-apocalyptic as it does in The Walking Dead, uh, it does, um, that's not the reason it was chosen for the filming. The actual reason for it is that the series is based on a long-running comic series by Robert Kirkman, and in the comics, uh, that was one of the major cities that was thrown out there to the living as a stronghold, stronghold before it fell to the zombies. Oh. So uh, he just was clearing uh, that up. And he also said, apart from that, uh, this was really interesting. Uh, he's talking about the life on the 500th floor episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, the concepts of uh, virtual farming are mind-blowing, though I think I'll be sad if I live to see the day when people live their entire lives in the same building. The loss of uh, cross-culture and social creation would be a very interesting thing to study, though. Isolated pockets of individuals whose influence is based off of what would essentially be isolationism and a futuristic Internet social network. The psychological and sociological discussion would be endless. Yeah, seriously, and I mean that—that that begs the question about whether or not we'd have tribes within these these buildings, these vertical oh, yeah. living platforms. We'd all have a different tribe and different buildings. It would be, or entire like different cultures in each building, like warring with each other. Well, and gene pools too. Yeah, yeah. You'd have yeah. You'd basically have different. Maybe you'd reach the point where like you have building A, building B, and like they can't even like breed. Wow. Yeah. Well, and instead of identifying yourself as an American or Australian, mm-hmm. you say I'm building A. Yeah. Now tell me, wait, Romeo and Juliet didn't that wasn't part of the thing that the everybody lived in like sort of ancient skyscrapers to a certain extent? Like they, if I'm am I remembering that correctly, they lived in that like that that region had sort of tall buildings, and everybody every each family would have like a building. I don't recall. That might, I mean, might be a there's definitely a balcony in that. So yeah, maybe so. Yeah. All I'm saying is. Futuristic Romeo and Juliet, one species living in building A, one species living in building B. Who's going to ride it? Um, I don't know. I, I'm you. throwing it out. Maybe me. Yeah. Maybe you, the listener. Send it in when you get it done. <laughs> uh, next three weeks would be good. Yeah. 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 And if you want to send us anything else, uh, you can certainly come to uh, visit our Facebook or Twitter pages. Uh, we are below the mind on both of those, and we are uh, constantly updating that with uh, links to cool How Stuff Works articles, cool articles from elsewhere on the web, and uh, our own blog posts. That's right. And if you'd like to send us an email, please do so at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.